1911 is one of the most iconic firearms in history. Designed by John Browning, the 1911 was the standard-issue sidearm of the U.S. military from 1911 to 1985. While Colt produced the original, almost every major firearm company has produced its own version. It's wildly revered for its reliability, crisp trigger, and is still a favorite for all types of shooters. Whether you're looking to buy or build a 1911 and just about everything for guns, log on to MidwayUSA.com. At Midway USA, we know the AR-15 is one of the most popular rifles in modern American history. Known for its modularity and widespread use, it's often considered essential to any gun collection. The essential things you need to run an AR-15 are usually always in stock during shortages, things like magazines and 5.56 ammo. Whether you're looking to buy a new AR-15 or buy parts for your modern sporting rifle, log on and for just about everything for the outdoors, shop MidwayUSA.com. Join Justin Townsend and the Harvesting Nature crew as they explore the world of cooking wild fish and game while sharing recipes, tips, tricks, and lessons learned from their pursuit of wild food. We sure hope you ate before the show, because you're going to leave hungry. This is the Wild Fish and Game Podcast. Hey everybody, welcome back to Harvesting Nature's Wild Fishing Game Podcast. You got your host here, Justin Townsend, and today we are going to have a crew chat. We haven't we haven't actually had a good crew chat with like all four of us on in a long time, I think. Uh, so this is going to be really good. So we'll do a bit of a uh, bit of news and fun stuff before we we get into like the the meat of the, the episode. But we're going to be talking about how you can overcome uh, some cooking mistakes, common cooking mistakes that, that we have made in the kitchen, uh, that probably a lot of people have made in the kitchen, and some ways in which you can move past it. Some may be like subtle suggestions, others may be not so obvious, but either way, we'll unpack those on this episode. Um, we did do an episode similar to this back about a year ago, which was titled Cooking Failures, but that one was more focused on uh, kind of mistakes, whereas this we're going to try to bring to light some solutions. Um, let's see. First off, uh, I'm not sure if I talked about this on the last episode, but uh, I did a bit of ice fishing. been trying to do a little more ice fishing. Um, I actually feel like I did, so I'm not going to go super deep into it. Caught some trout, uh, aged them for a couple days in the fridge, uh, and then... Uh, filleted them, cooked the fillets up. It's pretty tasty. Uh, really, really good. I forget exactly how I cooked them. I think just pan sear in some ghee with like a little salt and pepper, a little S&P uh, dusting. Came out really good. And yeah, pretty, pretty good night. And then um, other than that, I uh, got in for got my entries in for Colorado Turkey Draw. Got Zoe in in for the drawing, so we're just fingers crossed, waiting for uh, April May time period when those come out. Uh, the end of this month on on the first of March, the drawing opens up for big game tags here in Colorado. So if you're interested in Colorado tags, that's uh, going to be the time you're going to want to apply. They actually just released the big game uh, digest guide manual, whatever you want to call it today. So that's pretty cool. Um, so we'll be excited to take a look at that and sit down and make some strategies. Um, let's see. Other than that, uh, we've got our wild pig camp coming up. 
so we still got that a uh, couple spots. I think what about ten spots left uh, available for that for our May camp and a full twelve spots available for the December camp. We're looking at a couple other camps this year. Uh, haven't ironed those out yet, but they're coming hopefully down the down the pipe soon. And then um, I mentioned this. Uh, or, uh, oh my goodness. I mentioned this on a previous episode. We have the majority of our spice blends back in stock, with the exception of the wild game or the big game blend, which uh, we had to send out for more because we sold out again. Um, but I just got the invoice for that, so that should be here within the week. Actually, it may be here by the time you hear this episode. So check our website because you can always order some bottles of that before it's gone again. It's a hot commodity. And given the fact that we're in the tail end of waterfowl season, if you've got some uh, some honkers or quackers in the freezer, uh, our waterfowl blend is uh, pretty pretty popular. You're making a funny face. You don't like my honkers or quackers? I have no problem with honkers Colin. or quackers. <laughs> Thank you. Especially when they're seasoned with the waterfowl especially. blend. Then they're especially. even better. Um. I guess the big thing is give us some updates on Rendezvous, right? Uh, man, we've got a slew of activities going. Um, so as a group, we're going to be hosting a wild food panel to include Hank Shaw, Shannon Waters, Liz Lynch, uh, a few others from the crew, Adam Steele, Jeff Benda. So that'll be on Friday. We just posted about that on social media here with like kind of the announcement um, today. So that's going to be on Friday. And then on Saturday, we're actually going to record a live Q&A podcast episode there, which will be pretty exciting. Uh, so that'll be on Saturday of Rendezvous. So Friday is, what, the 17th. Saturday is the 18th of March uh, up in Missoula, Montana. Get your tickets for that and come visit with us. We'll also have a booth there. And then several of our Harvest Nature crew uh, will be throughout the period uh, teaching – uh, food courses or food seminars or cooking classes or cooking dinners uh, or all those things like that. So uh, that's pretty exciting. Adam, what are, what's yours, your cooking seminar? I'm doing um, something, a bit of a departure for the stuff I generally do, but it's just a super easy and cool and, <clears throat> and super riffable kind of skillet taco trick. Um, and you just basically put a, a tortilla or a, or a pita or something in the, I won't say exactly how I do it. I'll save that for, for when I show it, but uh, slap it in the, in the skillet with some ground meat of any sort. And then you can dress it any way you want. And it's just like this amazing like three minute skillet taco or skillet pita. Um, I made it like, I've been testing it out. I made like, a, I think eight different variations of it so far and uh, they're all delicious. So I think, yeah, that's what I'll be doing there. I'll be showing, hmm. showing the trick off. Ooh, that's good. Yeah, keep that keep that yeah. tight held until it's time to go. Um, and then I'm doing a uh, wild game canning uh, demo. I did that. I've done that one before, but I always like doing that one because I think canning is a good one. I may do some like uh, some ground meat this time, and uh, and do some game meat, and then probably I don't know. I'll surprise somebody and do something unexpected. Maybe some fish or something. Who knows? We'll see. Um, so those are cool things coming through and then, uh, I'll kick it around to you guys. Well, first 
let's welcome Adam as the the new managing editor of Harvesting Nature because this is the first episode that we've had him on uh, to welcome him. So he he joined us several years ago uh, as a, a contributor, then a field staff writer, and then one day he started hosting Antler and Finn, and then another day uh, he, he started helping out with our wild pig skills camps and we decided that wasn't enough for him so we asked him if he would be the managing editor and and now he's stuck with us forever sort of like the mafia uh but (laughs) i don't know adam any any words for us on your new position Yeah, i'll be taking over your position within the year i think (laughs) that's the plan (laughs) good take it (laughs) yes they call it in case you probably have no complaints No, I'm super happy to be part of the crew. It's, it, I just found the field staff writer, um, like call for field staff writers on the website a couple of years ago, and uh, and sent an email in. And ever since, I've been uh, you know loving all my time with you guys and and having getting to meet you guys in person. I haven't met Colin in person yet, but online a few no. times. And uh... you're not, you're not <laughs> yes, too <you're> much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just I really wanted to be part of the crew. So when the invitation came, I, I I couldn't say no. So I'm super excited. I'm happy to be part of it. No, definitely super stoked to have you on board and uh, excited to see where the riding program is going to go. We've already made some changes. So I will say those folks out there listening, if you have an interest in contributing or riding or learning to write more in the outdoor world, uh, hit us up. We're always looking for folks that are passionate about wild food and uh, wild pursuits. Yeah. Ooh, that's a good one. It's a new <laughs> slogan. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Colin, what you got going on in your neck of the woods? Or Adam, I'm sorry. I, I, I took the wind out of yourselves. Do you have anything uh, anything else updates-wise? Well, there really isn't any wind in my sails right now. Uh, ice fishing has been a bit of a bust this year because the ice has been super sketchy, back and forth, super mild, weird, weird, weird winter this year up where I am anyways. And, uh, yeah, so I've been out ice fishing a little bit, but with no success. So I've just kind of been focusing on, on cooking and, and with my new role and whatever. So I'm looking forward to, um, um, you know, getting to Texas for the wild pig camp and then getting hunting again in the spring and and summer here. So I'll, I'll wait until next year for some good ice fishing, I think. That's fair. Colin? So I just put in for the uh, Northwest Bear Tag here in Oregon. It's probably going to be the last big game season I'll have here because I am moving to Virginia this summer, uh, which is exciting. You know, how it's how it goes when you're in the, the military. Um, but I have been looking around at pretty much every state around there. So like Virginia, Maryland, Tennessee, Kentucky, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, all of them pretty much have, uh, well, all of them except for Maryland have an elk season um, or elk tags available. But uh, Maryland has its own uh, specialties too. They've got crab over there if you like blue crab. They've got uh, whitetail all over the place. They've got some good duck hunting and they've got sika deer over there on the uh, Chesapeake side. So uh, lots of good opportunities, although they'll be a little bit smaller than what I'm used to out here in Oregon, but looking forward to that. Yeah, man, what a fun adventure! I think I think it's going to be an interesting contrast to hear about the differences uh, in your experiences in Oregon and like being in the the mid Atlantic hunting and fishing and yeah, foraging. Some of the uh, yeah. So in Pennsylvania, there's only a few counties that have elk, 
and they all have, I think there's like 14 zones or something, but they all have um, descriptions about what the zones are like. And some of them are like, uh, well, we rec- you might have to walk a few miles to get into the good spots. So we recommend being in like excellent physical, <laughs> excellent physical shape. And it's like, what's a few miles to rural Pennsylvanians? It's like, I was, I was doing like nine or 10 miles a day <laughs> during my elk season out here. So I was like, I'm going to go with those. Yeah, I doubt there's going to be some folks going back there. Might, might be a good break. Yeah, uh, I don't want the break though. I want the uh, I want the bigger animal. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's if fair. I can get back farther than somebody else, and it's coming to have the advantage for sure. All right, Casey, what do you got going on, man? Oh, talking of uh, bigger animals, I've been out a couple of times at the end of the season here in South Dakota <laughs> trying to get some squirrels with my dog, but to no avail. Um, I didn't train her to be a squirrel dog. She just naturally took to it, so I embraced it. But it was a lackluster squirrel season. Uh, besides that, I was able to be in Salt Lake City for the Western Hunting and Conservation Expo. And uh, I won't give you a whole recap of the entire event, but two highlights that were pretty cool to be a part of on a Friday night of that event... There's an Antelope Island mule deer tag that gets auctioned off. And I believe the previous record for that tag was 410 or 20,000. And wow. this year it sold for $500,000. Um, and all of that money goes back to the state game agencies for habitat and wildlife research. So that was awesome to see. And then kind of the icing on the cake came the next night on Saturday we had uh, another banquet and they auctioned the statewide Arizona mule deer tag and that tag sold for a record 725000 wow. And again, that goes back to the Arizona State Game Agency for mule deer and uh, other wildlife in that area. So pretty crazy to see two, two records get broken and lots of good nice. money for conservation. So. One other note I was going to say is a PSA for anybody in western states. I've also been out a couple of times for shed hunting. It's pretty early in the season, but the whitetails around here have been dropping. But uh, depending on the state you live in, some of the states have had pretty rough winters and are uh, putting out kind of last-minute bans or pauses on any shed hunting. So... If you live in any western states that have been hit particularly hard, make sure you're checking those states before you go out because you might get yourself into a little bit of trouble. And obviously the bigger picture is they don't want you pushing wildlife around in areas where they're already having a particularly rough time. So, so yeah, Colorado has like a standing, uh, standing regulation. So any... You, you aren't allowed to collect uh, shed antlers or horns on any public lands west of I-25 from, like, January 1st through April, uh, which is it's pretty wild. A lot of folks do it private land, of course, but uh, it's actually, like, if you're on public lands, and some of the lands close together completely for, like, calving and, and uh, I guess would be fawning. I don't know what you would call, call the raising of deer, but, you know, that's a calling call an interjection if you have it but uh um yeah so it kind of helps 
helps protect the little babies, especially if the winter's been pretty harsh, which Colorado, we've gotten tons and tons of snow. I think uh, this was uh, last week or the week before that I heard that total this year Steamboat Springs has had over 120 or 130 inches of snow, and we just got another here in Denver. Uh, yesterday and today we had another probably six inches of snow, so I can imagine the mountains are pretty pretty stacked again. But great for us for the spring and for the summer for water, but holy smokes, does it make for some harsh times during the winter. Um, yeah, when we were in uh, Salt Lake, there's obviously surrounded by mountains, but they've had so much snow this year, it's pushed some of the historic elk herds all the way down to the interstate and so it's been in the local news almost daily of elk getting out onto the interstate just because they're trying to get down to lower elevation so interesting new problems yeah. to, to figure out yeah that's crazy um so i, I looked up calving calving is to produce uh basically to produce by birth a calf. But that doesn't talk about like raising. That was just what calving is. The re- rearing? Rearing's a good term. I like that. <clears throat> well, you know, no, I was talking about like, so calving, I know that ca- they close areas off for like calving, which is for like the yeah. birth. So you don't disturb the mother, the mother and put her under stress as she's like giving birth. But I was saying like, I don't think of deer as like calving because deers don't have oh, calves, they have fawns. That's why I was like, is it, is it called fawning? But I don't know. Um, it sounds weird. <laughs> no, fawning is like seeking approval or flattery. doesn't say anything about deer. <laughs> yeah. We can ask a biologist, which I am not, at least not a, Mammal biologist. Uh, well, they say so. Colorado says in most parts of western Colorado, winter conditions affecting big game typically last into late April or early May, and big game are still losing weight and body condition. The April 30th dates intended to help minimize additional stress during this critical time frame. So, Colorado doesn't necessarily quote the need for calving or raising of little babies. But uh, rearing. Uh, that just being the stress on the animals. Yeah, the rearing. But either way. Um, all right, you guys want to talk about recipes first, or do we want to talk about some failures in the kitchen, mistakes to overcome? Failures in the kitchen and mistakes to overcome. All right, let's do it. So my thought is, is like wild food, although slightly different than than most other foods, just given the fact that it's it's wild and it's different and we pursue it and dump a lot of time and energy to it. At the end of the day, it's still food. And so it follows a lot of the same principles when it's cooking. It follows a lot of different principles when cooking. So we're going to kind of talk about the intersection of those two and maybe bring up some some facts that will help you improve your food and get away from maybe making mistakes. <clears throat> Sorry, and maybe making mistakes and ways to sort of like 
overcome it. Because in the end, like I mentioned, we all invest a lot of time in acquiring this food unless you're really, really good, which you know those people that like go out and they're like, I just walked out in the field and then 60 geese landed and I shot them. And then, uh, you know, the next week I went out and got in the deer stand and the deer walked under me and I was done and I was out in 30 minutes. That's like Corey. I feel like Corey's not here, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk him up. But like Corey, Corey knocks down some deer in Pennsylvania. Uh, yeah, he usually gets about like five or six a year. Yeah, which is wild. So um, yeah. I would say yes. So either way, you still want to take care of the food and you still want to cook it deliciously. So let's go into it. Uh, and I'll I'll bounce around. You guys just like throw in whatever comments wherever. Um, <clears throat> man, let's start with overcooking. So – Funny enough, we, we've been making some myth-busting posts on Instagram, and this one was kind of talked about in a, in a little detail. Uh, actually, both overcooking and undercooking was in that post. Interesting comments. So our first myth-busting post, we had a lot of feedback on Instagram. And this myth-busting post, we've gotten a lot of feedback on Facebook, which is interesting. Just like where people are, are attracted to different pieces of information at different times. But um, so the, the overcooking thing comes a little bit from that it's easy to overcook wild game more so than any, any other types because you don't really have that uh, additional fat or a large amount of fat to kind of protect you from overcooking it. So as somebody who may be new to wild game, if you're not really paying close attention to it, then you can definitely overcook it very easily. And I think that's probably one of the biggest contributors, I would say, to people claiming like, I had this delicious or this disgusting gray, grainy mess of a piece of meat that, you know, my my uncle's twin nephew twice removed it's always an uncle yeah (laughs) it's always Always. a weird uncle (laughs) well the weird uncle served me this weird piece of game meat and it was terrible uh and i chewed on it for 30 minutes but it wasn't jerky so i don't know uh i'll toss that one out there for for feedback um I'll lead right off the bat and say like the biggest way to prevent overcooking or undercooking is probably to have a thermometer. I can't like, I can't preach this enough. I'll probably have it etched on my headstone of like, where's your meat thermometer? Uh, as I lie in the grave somewhere. But, um, yeah, I mean, that's it. Check the temperature. It takes two seconds. You know where you're at. Uh, understand a little bit about thickness of meat and how long it takes to cook like what does the outside look like what is the inside um i don't know you guys have any other tips or tricks you can think of for overcooking i know casey has a story i do i'm gonna save one for a little bit later because it's overcooking in a different sense but my tip for overcooking in the sense of you know using a meat thermometer is just i've made the mistake in the past of you know, cooking, let's say cooking an elk backstrap that's intact rather than cut into slices and it's maybe, you know, six to eight inches long and four inches in diameter. Temping one spot isn't necessarily going to tell you the full story. 
So I've definitely made that mistake, especially if you have a piece of meat that tails off in one direction, where I've tempt one spot and been like, oh, it's spot on, and I pull it off and let it rest and come to realize that three-fourths of it is That's it. You bring up another really good point, too, about pulling it off to rest is that, well, you brought up two good points uh, that I want to make. Pulling, huh? I'm full of them. (laughs) Yeah. I said I'm full of good points. One being that when you rest, generally you're going to see the temperature climb in meat about five degrees. So you can generally pull it. I would say with the exception of like if you're dancing close to the line of like a food safety temperature, like 137 in pork or 140 or 145, which is kind of what I tend to go with. If you're dancing close to that, I would probably stage it over a little bit. But like, let's say you want to get your your steak to 140, right? So instead of pulling it, the steak when it hits 140, pull the steak when it hits 135 and let it rest because, weirdly enough, the meat temperature is going to climb and then come back down. So it, it's going to hit 145. Uh, I don't know. Have you guys seen any different? That's like a, that's a, a trick I've always, I've always used. No, I've always done the same thing. Um, I think a sous vide is a little bit better about not, I mean, the temperature is still going to rise a little bit, but if you want to eat something like at temperature, then I would sous vide it and then, take it out, sear it, whatever, do the final sear, and you're pretty much going to be spot on. I would say it's maybe like bring it to like two or three degrees below where you want it to as far as like the sous vide setting, and then sear it, and that will bring the rest of it up the rest of the way. Um, but that's if you have a sous vide, you like using it. Yeah. Which is also a great tool for wild game too because it will keep all the liquids and juices in there. They won't dry it out. Um, another, the other point I wanted to bring, unless somebody else has, has one, uh, is that when you stick a meat thermometer in a piece of meat, you probably want to do so when it is not in a hot pan, because if you stick it all the way through, what are you sticking it into the hot pan? And so you're going to get a misreading. I I will take it and like almost skewer the meat, (laughs) like pick it up or I'll put it quickly, put it on a cutting board temp it quickly put it back in i don't know adam am i messing that technique up what do you think no i think the same uh i would you know take it in from the top from the side take a couple different ones make sure your your um tester is is calibrated (laughs) i just turned on my alexa somehow uh, I just threw out the floor so I don't have to worry about it anymore. <laughs> uh, yeah, from the top and from the side, make sure it's calibrated because they don't all come calibrated. So read the read the instructions. Yeah, don't just like yeah. crank it open and start using it because you might have to do some settings within the the uh, tool. And uh, also find one that you really like and trust. Because I went through all these cheap pieces of crap for years because I was too Mm -hmm. cheap to buy a good one. And I ended up ruining... Probably probably ended up spending more than you would have. Yeah, I really did. And I also had to repair holes in the wall from whipping it at the wall after I ruined a nice piece of meat. (laughs) Time and time again (laughs) until I eventually just spent the money on like a decent one. And I've had that one for a couple years now. I love it and I use it and it's so reliable. So 
it doesn't I wouldn't say you need to find a particular one, just find the one that you like and that you trust and that is reliable for you. Now excuse me while I go find my phone on my phone. I think... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um Yeah, no, I think that's probably the biggest if, thing. Like, if you can find a, a thermometer that has a probe with a cord, like it's an inline one that's a good way to keep yourself from overcooking too. Cause even if you have one that just like sticks in and measures right away, um, I mean, you could, you could miss that window. So, I mean, I have one that has two probes that are connected by wires and you can just close the oven door on them or grill door on them or whatever. And they'll give you a little alarm. Have you guys seen those wireless ones they have? Yeah. Yeah. Those are, those baffle me how you can put like a Bluetooth electronic thermometer in a grill, but I wonder how much yeah, they are. They're pretty crazy. <laughs> Yeah, 100 bucks. Some of them. The meter. <laughs> M-E-A-T-E-R. That's cheeky. I like it. <laughs> the meter. <laughs> the meter. Yeah. It's the it looks like a pen. It's pretty cool. That one's only like 60 bucks, 70 bucks with free shipping. Uh, and it yeah. it connects to it. Yeah. And if you buy in the next five minutes, <laughs> I will. I'll add the caveat that expensive thermometers don't necessarily mean good ones with all the techie sure, stuff yeah. going. Because um, my my current experience is I have a, a four prong thermometer that connects Bluetooth to my phone, and uh, I've done some scientific experimentation and placed prongs in the exact same location over and over and gotten up to a 10 degree variance from one prong to the next and this is it's probably a hundred to 150 dollars wow. so all that to say figure out what method you want but it's probably best to at least have one more traditional easily calibrated style because like adam said throwing stuff across <laughs> the room when you ruin a nice piece of meat if you've got an old standby that you can go back to mm-hmm. in a moment's notice, I'm still like, a good idea. I still have some issues with trusting electronic thermometers. Uh, I still have like two or three of the analog thermometers from you know, my early kitchen days that I still like. If I get to where I think that the electronic one could or couldn't be off, and I have like a decent electronic one. I just picked it up at the restaurant supply store. Like it's nothing fancy. It was probably like 25 bucks. But it, it works well. I just sometimes I'm just like I don't know. I don't know if I like you today, and I'll pull out the analog one and throw it in just to give it a second look. But um, you never know. Yeah, I'm, I'm with Casey on that. And I'm just looking. There's like a ton. There's the meter again. This one's a hundred bucks. If you're on a, if you're on a Amazon, there's a bunch though. Which one? Which one do you have? No, because I don't want to buy that one now. Oh, I don't want to call them out on the air, and I can't remember, so that saves me. I was going to say, you know, like, all those archery hunting YouTube channels always do, like, that. we're going to shoot 50 different broadheads and tell you which one's the best. Maybe we need to do, like, that. we're going to test 30 different temp gauges and tell you Adam, write that one down. Let's do it. Let's, Let's test some temp gauges. We talked about this. Uh, no, I think that's awesome idea actually, but we're going to caveat this. We're going to buy them 
and not tell the companies, and then we're going to put yeah, out the article. That's a better idea. Independent testing review. Yeah, so so they don't they don't send us the one that's like you know reserved for testers in the back <laughs> or something. Yeah, they're like, oh, yeah. Harvest Nature's testing. Let's send them the calibrated <laughs> one. <laughs> yeah, hand designed by our our designer Joffrey. <laughs> I don't know why I said Joffrey, but Joffrey. Yeah, it's that's <laughs> when you have Jeffrey with a G. Yeah, I watch Game of Thrones. <laughs> <laughs> um all right moving on uh let's talk about wait before we uh before we leave overcooking should i jump into the other yeah 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 let's do it let's do it that i made tonight okay so um i've got a bunch of elk left from two years ago so it's it's maybe 18 months old now so it's getting to the point where i need to start moving through it a little quicker and being winter, I've been doing a lot of slow-cooked meals and soups and roasts and whatnot. <clears throat> and if I have time, I'll do it in the in the Dutch oven or something. But a lot of times, I end up using my my pressure cooker or instant pot. And so tonight, I made a mistake of overcooking by cooking something for too long, with the intent of breaking it down and making it tender. We were doing a curry. Um, but I left it in there for too long, and it became too tender, too soft, like to the point where it starts to get yeah. mushy. And so I guess one thing to keep in mind, obviously, check it a couple of times. It's harder on an, on the new, we were just talking about techie stuff, on the new pressure pots where, you know, normally it would take six to eight hours or something for a big elk roast. All of a sudden... I throw it in there for two hours, and it's it's too long. It probably only needed, like, 90 minutes. But um, that's one tip is, like, if you're not sure, you can always check your, your pressure pot or your Dutch oven partway through and, and test it. But the other note I would say on it is uh, I've made the mistake of, of overcooking something like that to where it starts to become a little mushy. And then, for instance, if you're – so you're shredding it for, like, taco meat um, – over shredding it too which is easy to do if it starts to lean towards being mushy and so if you do make the mistake and letting it get too soft is is treating it delicately delicately from that point forward so like with this curry i made sure to cut it into bigger sections and just kind of let it fall apart on its own because it was already to that point rather than trying to to shred it or anything because it would have just kind of turned into a a mushy powder which sounds terrible so it rehydrated and it wasn't it wasn't as bad as it could have been knowing the mistakes i had made in the past but definitely would have been better if i had pulled it 30 minutes earlier and there must be something in the air tonight because i also overcooked something today uh which is quite unlike me <laughs> but i was i had a venison neck roast that i was doing in a dutch oven and I had it in there for most of the day, and I was doing like a kind of, I was going to do like a noodle soup with it, and I had a, um, I wasn't quite sure what I was going to do with it yet, but I had it braising down a bunch of Chinese aromatics, and uh, it was getting to the point where it was almost done, and I, I was going to a dinner party, so I had it turned up higher than I should have for slow cooking, um, and I went over to the couch, and my dog was on it, and she was being really cuddly, so I 
you know, cuddled with her for a bit, and then I passed out on the couch and fell asleep. And I woke up to the smell of burning, <laughs> and uh, rushed to the kitchen, and the sauce was totally toast, like just burnt to the bottom of the Dutch oven. But the roast was okay, but like Casey said, way softer than I wanted it to be. Um, I decided to not bring it to the dinner party I went to tonight and do something else. But uh, I'm doing an experiment with it, so we'll see if I can salvage it somehow. But I, I took it out and I wrapped it super tight in saran wrap or plastic wrap and put it in the fridge. So hopefully that kind of like solidifies it a little or hardens it. And then I'm going to put it on the slicer tomorrow and see if I can slice it and see what happens. Because there's this Chinese dish where they braise shanks, then cool them down and slice them. And I wonder if that will work. I don't have high hopes, but um, yeah, I do what I can to salvage this beautiful venison neck that I've been saving for a special occasion. Uh, yeah. So I wasn't too happy with myself. <laughs> I'm I'm disappointed yeah. in both of you right now. Colin is too. I can see it. I've never overcooked a piece of meat in my entire life. So neither have I. Uh, Shame. Oh I, yeah, maybe in a couple of days when I have the uh, this venison tenderloin aging in my fridge right now, maybe uh, I'll let you know in a couple of days when I was certainly will overcook that. So. <laughs> Got to get a a meat thermometer. Yeah. Yeah, I have one, you know. I'm going to dig it up in all these boxes, but yeah. <laughs> this upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecovis store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Uh, let's talk, we'll talk briefly on undercooking. Uh, I think it's kind of the opposite of overcooking. It's an educated guess, but, um, so I think probably the biggest concern I think I have with undercooking is probably like the food safety bit. Uh, and that's probably going to come into play a lot when you're talking about like bear, pig, mountain lion, coyote, the other things like that, that, uh, you know, are likely higher carriers of trichinella 
or trichinosis. I never forget which one it is. I think it's the trichinella parasite, but the the sickness is trichinosis. Yeah, symptom, yeah, it's trichinosis. Yeah. But also, too, this is an interesting one. I've had some interesting feedback off of the most recent myth that we posted and was, you know, most game birds, excluding your waterfowl or darker meat birds like grouse and dove, should be cooked to above 160 or 165 in that area because all birds are natural carriers or can be natural carriers of salmonella. And it's actually, that is why, like, cooking turkey to temp, cooking chicken to temp, and in the domestic world, I guess turkey in the wild world too, but uh, that's why that becomes so vital, is uh, that that salmonella becomes pretty apparent, and I guess, like, a lot of birds have salmonella, but it depends on what strain it is and in what concentration, uh, that that's really kind of what makes you sick, so, like, the blanket of, like, also to E. coli because birds eat things that they don't necessarily uh, think about beforehand and that can often contain E. coli, maybe some poo. Uh, but yeah, I think so that that's probably the reason of, of the higher cooking temps definitely for birds. So something to think about. And somebody posted an interesting comment of like, oh, what about sharp tail? Like people eat those mid-rare. Why haven't we heard about more bird hunters getting sick from eating undercooked birds? I'm like, well, probably because they're cooking the ones that they should be cooking and they're cooking the ones other, you know, and to a lower temp that they can. Like grouse, grouse is a darker meat, sharp tail especially. Uh, like dove, you know, dove you don't have to cook above a medium rare and all stuff like that. But there's still ways to cook it to where you're not like drying it out, which I think is the part that people miss, um, which is the overcooking. Man, you're dancing back and forth. I don't know. Do you guys have any undercooking stories? I'm trying to think. I've got undercooking fish stories probably where you end up with like a little mushy, mushy fish. But um, So I, I do have an actual overcooking story. I was just joking around earlier because clearly I'm not that good of a cook. But um, – my a good solution so the other day i had i tried to make a venison pot roast uh it didn't turn out great it, it was a little dry on the inside i think i just kept it in the slow cooker for too long and then it dried out and evaporated um, which i thought was going to be hard to do but i did it so um <laughs> but uh this is a trick that i actually learned from my dad is you can take like meat like that. We always did it with lamb, especially, even though like the lamb is never overcooked, it just tasted good. But cut it up into small pieces, like if it's too overcooked and you don't want to eat it in like the big chunks that it is, cut it up into small pieces, mix it with some onion on a plate, like just raw onion, and then sprinkle some olive oil, red wine vinegar, and salt and pepper over it. It is absolutely delicious. It'll turn any overcooked dish around. Ooh. I really like that tip. And it's like it's like a little snack. You just toss it all together and it's perfect. I like that. I like onions too. So yeah. that works. Yep. Um, anybody have an undercooking story? Definitely had some, some bigger pieces of, of chicken or whatever that I've had to like sneak back to, to the, the old microwave of shame <laughs> halfway through dinner. <laughs> Oops. Cause I, I try not to go, just, I try not to overcook over there. my chicken. Silently yeah. judging you. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, I, after a while, you start to get a hang of it. Like, 
if you for I think I had an adjustment period where I learned that I was overcooking my chicken. I tried to cook it to the proper temperature instead, and then had a bit of an adjustment period where I undercooked it or overcooked it a few times. And now I generally get it spot on every time. You kind of develop after if you keep doing it and pushing through, you develop kind of a sixth sense for a lot of different cuts of meat of like when it's going to be done. I'm sure if you cook like a t- Unless, unless it's nap unless time. Unless it's nap time, then you're screwed. <laughs> unless your dog's being way too cute, and you got to go have a snuggle, and you fall asleep. <laughs> I think, uh, like you say, if you have a, an elk, and you're cooking elk every day, you start to develop a sense of when exactly it's going to be done without even needing a temperature anymore. And mm-hmm. so I, I guess the recommendation would be just keep doing it, keep trying. Even if you make mistakes, learn from them, you're eventually going to get the feeling for when it's done um and the good thing about undercooking things is that you can always throw it back on the heat if you need to it might not be quite as good as you originally planned on it being but it's not ruined where if you burn meat into a solid hunk of coal or whatever it's not edible but there's no no there's no coming back from that yeah yeah, I was going to uh, say well, it's, it's probably let's... important to identify how it is you're undercooking it because, like we were talking about with slow cooking something or in a pressure cooker, you can check it, and that was mistakes I've made in the past, often with like shanks, for instance, is thinking that it's done, and then maybe like the tendons or the fat didn't break down completely, and so you've got this kind of weird texture in there. Um, often it's going to rehydrate if it goes back into the pressure pot or the Dutch oven. Uh, and if you have the time, you can just let it, let it keep going. But yeah, like you said, you develop an understanding of the meat. You know, if you cook some fowl at high heat and get a nice, you know, crisp sear on the outside and then it's raw in the middle, it's probably going to be a little bit harder to salvage. Yeah. Uh, it's a good point though you bring up that it's not like undercooking doesn't necessarily mean like raw chicken like undercooking may be a venison shank that you didn't cook long enough and it's still too tough to to chomp down on and to work with that point like giving yourself the time to do it I got a a picture of you just like carrying a shank around just like eating it (laughs) off the bone like a lolly like a smoked turkey leg from the county fair (laughs) that might have happened once or twice no (laughs) i mean i i I know i'm eat off the bone i'm i'm uh i will admit of my savage ways no i think you're you're actually you're really you're spot on with that and that's something we mentioned too in that post was uh is that it's okay to cook some cuts higher than like 160 which is the the temperature we were contesting and i think sort of shanks necks those really like sinewy tendony shoulders yeah those cuts of meat that have a lot going on inside of them uh are the ones that you want to cook up to like the threshold of like 190 195 maybe 200 like we have a i did a a whole smoked wild pork leg uh recipe like on the smoker obviously it's smoked but um i did it on the smoker with the intent to prove like you can slow and long smoke wild game and i think a lot of people miss that mark of like getting it in there too long and it ends up drying out but you're still like looking for that upward temperature um 
I'll throw that recipe in the link if you want to read sort of like how I did it, but it involves like adding fat into it and wrapping it and it kind of helps sealing in the moisture. That was it. But also too, like having a temp gauge in it and like tracking the temp as it progressed because it progressed and plateaued, came back down and then went back up again, just like you would see uh, various other cuts of meat on the smoker sort of go. But the end result was like getting it to that 195 so I could, you know, fork flake it off of uh off of the bone and it still had that nice smoke ring and had that great smoky flavor um so that's that's a really that's a favorite of mine but yeah it's okay to cook things really high i think like overcooking things to a drying point or overcooking things to uh you know too high temperature that it shouldn't be is like i think that's the overcooking and undercooking too is like like both Adam and Casey mentioned, like undercooking's okay because you can reheat. I think you can add it in, add more liquid, add more time, lower the heat, let it go a little longer. And I would say even if your outside is crispy too, because you could get like you get that Maillard reaction on the outside, and then you could let that go like a braise and just kind of like soften up. I guess too, it really depends on what you want to do in in the world of recipes. Like what your original intent is, but let's use that as a good segue can I, into what we want to hit you up before you segue. <laughs> that was a quick yes, guess. <laughs> I recall. I recall my segue. <laughs> I'll try to provide you with another one. Uh, it's gonna just just on that point of of the, like cooking, say a shank or a shoulder or a neck or even like goose legs, which can be notoriously tough when you're working with wild game compared to to domestic game. Like generally, domestic game is always going to be killed at the same age. So you're going to be working with very similar cuts of meat, no matter which grocery store you go Ooh. to across the country, across other countries. You're going to be working like a, a beef shoulder is going to react pretty similar to a beef shoulder you buy on the other coast, you know. Um, but with wild game, that's not the case because you don't know exactly how old your goose is going to be. Like, I've done goose legs that take taken two hours to soften. I've had goose legs that refuse to soften for several more hours. And the same can be said for, like, an old elk or an old venison shank or something. So just a just a tip. Like, if you're going to be, you know, doing a dinner party or something and relying on this thing cooking in time, uh, cook it the day before and reheat it. Because then, you know, you might have to add another hour or two you don't want your guests waiting around all night while you're still just trying to like hammer out this shank in the oven. Um, maybe do it the night before. And because these cuts have so much like collagen and, and, and sinews and all this stuff, they actually reheat pretty nicely. So, so pack it in with the juices that it was cooked in, gently reheat it the next day when you're ready for dinner, and then go. Because that's something I've encountered is, you know, I cooked a venison shank. It took me three hours. I wrote down three hours. I had a, a different deer. I cooked down the venison shank. It took five hours i'm like oh and i was really relying on that three hours for to feed you know guests and whatever so so keep that in mind with wild game because uh you never know that the toughness level can really change on you i think you brought a great segue <laughs> it's not the segue i was gonna say but uh let's do a segue on impatience and inattention okay. uh that's a that's a big one we'll, we'll hit on that um I'll let you. Who put that note in That's there? Me. Did yeah. you, Adam? All right. I'll let you take it. Take okay. it away. So pretty much everything we've we've talked about so far, and I imagine most of the things we're going to continue to talk about on this podcast, 
in terms of cooking mistakes and failures and whatever come from two things, in my opinion, in the kitchen are impatience and inattention. Um, people who tell me they, they aren't good cooks or they can't cook anything, they can't even follow a recipe, are people who leave the kitchen and let things burn or let things, you know, they're not, they're not, they don't pay attention to things. Um, or they're too impatient and they don't follow the rules correctly. Um, if generally all mistakes, like, like my mistake today was inattention. I left the kitchen, which I shouldn't have, and I rarely ever leave this kitchen. I'm chained to it, but I left the kitchen and things went wrong. Um, you got to stick with your, with your meal and everyone with, with small kids is probably telling me to screw off right now in their minds, but, uh, <laughs> yeah, we just lost, we just lost like 200 yeah. podcast followers. <laughs> <laughs> but it's important that they, if you're, if you're cooking this stuff to, to keep paying attention to it, uh, and then to be patient. So let that pan heat up all the way. Uh, let your meat fly out properly. Uh, let your meat rest properly after cooking. Dry your meat up properly before adding to the pan. Do those little steps. Do those patience little little steps that that take the time. They will make a difference. And if you skip all that stuff, if you're impatient, you throw your meat in a cold pan that's still kind of wet, and then you don't rest it, and then you know you're you're walking out of the kitchen and they come back and it's overcooked. Like that's why your game probably doesn't taste good. Um, if you want to be serious about it and, and make something really nice with it and, and kind of honor, honor the, the animal and meat, then, then in patience and attention are, are your biggest enemies. That's, that's my little spiel. Have you guys, so talking about, uh, heating pans, cause that was, that was a, another segue. You'll segue me again. Um, so, Starting with a cold pan is not great. Uh, you you never want to have your pan heating up and your food heating up in it. You want to add your uh, wait. You're gonna correct just me. just with duck breasts and bacon, I guess. So there's a couple caveats, but almost all the time you never want that. Wait with bacon? Yeah, bacon added to a cold pan doesn't shrink up on you as much. And duck breasts added fat side down allows them to render out properly. So there's a couple caveats to the rule, but for the most part, you always want your pan ripping hot before you put anything in it there. Yep. Okay. So Adam, Adam's got some good points. Thanks, Adam. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So let's think through types of pants here. Uh, One, one cool thing is if you just want to do it, or if you have one lying around like I have, uh, one of those laser temperature gauges. Those are cool. Have you guys seen those? I use one uh, for my pizza yeah, oven. they're neat. And now I've started using it on my cast iron pans and actually all my pans. And I'll just like, as it's on, I'll check it for temperature and I'll see like where it's at. Like, oh, is it 350? Is it 250? Because like cast iron generally, and we talked about this on the show with cast iron Kyle, like you want to get your cast iron like ripping hot before you're putting things in it. And that's going to help with that like nonstick feature um of cast iron what that looks like is like slightly smoking on a cast iron that's going to help you get the good sear the good crust that you want 
translate that over to stainless steel. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, Facebook, TikTok, Instagram, whatever video. Uh, I forget the name of the chef that's doing it, but stainless steel pans, he's exactly right. There's like a water trick you can do. Mm. So you take your stainless steel pan, so that's uncoated stainless steel. Uncoated stainless steel at the right temperature can also be nonstick. You're going to heat it. It's going to get it ripping hot. How you know it's ready, you can check it with your temp gauge. I don't know the exact temperature off the top of my head. Or you can take like a flick of water and throw in there. If the water steams, it's not ready. If the water rolls around like a marble inside of it or in a bunch of little balls, it's hot enough. True. True story. Done it. Um, So that's how you know. uh, I would say probably... Probably with nonstick pans, it's like get up to temp. Like, also too, a little bit of know your stove. I think too, like know you know, like I've got. I know some of my pans, like my cast iron pan, I have to put on like eight on it, you know, which is like a medium to high in order to get it up to a good searing temp. My nonstick pans, I can put on a six. Like it just, it really depends too on the thickness of the pan. I'll give another tip too: if you're pan shopping, thick bottom pans are great because they're going to distribute the heat more evenly than a thin bottom pan. A thin bottom pan you'll find are hotter at the points where the the flames or the heating element is. You know, Adam, do you have a different experience? No. I go, like, to the thrift store, and I just walk down the aisle, and I flick each pan with my finger. And the heavy ones, I stop and take a better <laughs> look at it. Because, <laughs> like, all the light ones, I just walk right by. I do the same thing with the knives. And then you can get a really good deal, cheap pan or, or I've got a, some really nice knives from the thrift store but you can just there's a pile you just check really quick by by touching them and seeing which ones are heavy and then take a closer look from there the heavier pan will always do you better I I too the majority of my pans like non-stick any of that I buy at the restaurant supply store like they're actually you'll get a high quality pan for much cheaper than you will on like Amazon or Macy's or any of the other like big box stores uh and it's it's made for restaurant grade so it's made for commercial use you'll get more life out of it i still like my non-stick pans i'll still only get like a year or two out of them before it's time to like replace them just because like i also really abuse kitchen equipment yeah, too. too just that's why i'm at thrift stores all the time <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um so I think those are the cool the pan. Do you guys have any uh, any other thoughts on on pans and hotness? Just use the right or pan impatience. for the right situation. So um, when we you know occasionally get you know like a new nonstick, for instance, it's tempting to be like shiny object and want to cook everything in that. But a lot of them aren't meant to cook on high heat. So if you're wanting to get a good sear on something don't use a pan that can't be used at high heat yeah that's fair yeah yeah that and know what you can and can't use in a cast iron so like i wouldn't use fish in a cast iron unless you're only going to use that cast iron for fish because it'll always smell like fish see i don't know Um, i disagree i'm sorry well, do you, are you do you are you saying that from a point where you want to combine the flavors? No, like I I, or, I use my cast iron for fish, and I'll use it for steak the next night, or sometimes I'll cook. Oh, really? I'll cook things in it, clean it out, and cook something else in it in the same setting. Like I think 
I don't know that that with the fish too. I think it also comes down to like a heat aspect. I do notice there's sometimes yeah. like a weird aroma whenever you're reheating it. You'll get like kind of that fish smell, but I think just heating it too. And and Kyle brought up that point of like you're bringing that pan up to temperature to like kill the bacteria. Any smell from fish is coming over from like the essence left behind. So yeah. Well, my. I had an experience where I could fish in it and I could never get the fish smell out of it. So now that's my fish cast iron. That's um, fair. But also, like, I think it's like acids, right? Like you're not supposed to cook, mm-hmm. put tomatoes in a cast iron. Yeah. Um, but an easy way around that is to use a Dutch oven, an enamel-lined Dutch oven, because then you nothing's going to stick in there and it does the same thing as far as heat transfer. Yeah. Yep. 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 I would say to you if, you, if we talked about that in uh, oh. last episode other episode a couple episodes ago if 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 you're working with the new stove like i've been working with the new crappy electric stove lately that like the elements pulse hot and cold and the i've got new pans so this cooking has been a little challenging lately for me um but don't take your prized like elk tenderloin and try it out on your brand new stove or pan like buy a pack of cheap pork chops and cook them up and get a sense of how everything like the heat works how your pan works um you know that kind of stuff before screwing around with like some of your really prized awesome wild game um or do some burgers or something i don't know just do something easy and figure out how all your stuff works like casey was saying and then move into your good stuff once you figure it out I think while we're still on the topics of pans, like this is a good one to hit on is like packing the pan full. Like I've done this a lot. I remember growing up as a kid and like going over to my neighbor's house and we were assigned to like, we were going to cook the taco meat for the night. And she's like, Justin, do you know how to cook taco meat? And 10 year old Justin was like, yes, I know how to cook taco meat. 10 year old Justin did not know how to cook taco meat. Uh, We was like, half frozen we're like scraping it the meat off the frozen block of meat to like get it in the pan and what do you end up with too when you have like this packed pan of like meat you can't see my hands but i'm making this cool symbol uh maybe we'll put that in the instagram but uh (laughs) so you have this packed pan of like ground meat and this gray weird liquid right that's like the proteinaceous fluid that's cooked off inside there with also the uh, fat renderings and the liquid that comes off of the meat as well. And just like the smorgasbord of not great things. That's the stuff when they tell you to drain your ground meat, that's why you're doing it. Just to get that out of there. If you have it, which if you don't pack your pan full, you won't have it. Um, But I think that's for a multitude of things. And I think packing... Packing a pan full is never going to allow you to get that Maillard reaction because there's going to be all these like heat variances inside the pan as it's cooking. Same with like stewing meat or for chili. Like if you're doing meat for chili, like if you have like two pounds of of cubed meat, don't you're never going to brown them properly if you dump it all in at the same time. Do it in batches, and that goes back to that impatience thing I was saying. Like it's you need the patience to do three batches, even if it's pain in the ass. You're gonna get much better end product out of it. Um, I think you hit. You also hit on another point. You didn't even realize it. Is all right. Say you you do have a large pan, right? 
So you've got a handful of meat, raw meat, that's going to go in this pan. You've heated it up. You've had your oil. Your oil's heated up. You're going to put the meat in the pan in one handful, but you still have room for two other handfuls. Do you grab another handful of meat and throw it in there, or do you allow that meat a moment to like start to cook and the pan to come back up to temperature? Because what happens is as you add the cold meat to the pan, there's like this temperature fluctuation going on. So if you had a bunch of cold meat in there, or even spread out in there, it's still not going to come up to temp at a reasonable rate. It's going to be harder. You're not going to get that good sear. That's true. I do a three-section, like I would dump one handful, wait a minute, and then dump another handful in another section of the pan, and then in the other section, and keep them separated until it all starts browning nicely, and then combine it all at the end. That's how I tackle that problem, I think. But make sure there's time in between. That's, that's a good. That's a good one. I don't know, Casey, what do you think? Uh, I fall into the category that Adam mentioned of the people with small children. And so <laughs> my way around <laughs> my way around pack, packing the pan is uh, having large pans so and using using them you know accordingly. So I I find myself using my fourteen inch cast iron a lot more than my ten inch just because it gives me a little bit more wiggle room to, to get it done in a quicker timeline. Yeah, I I would say I'm I'm in the same boat as you. Uh, I have the I do have like a large 14. I don't know, it may be bigger that uh, the double hander handled Finex pan that I have. Like that thing lives on my stove, and I just like I can rip four burgers in it like super quick. Um, but yeah, bigger pans. I think bigger family, bigger pans. It's funny how that starts happening. I will add, uh, we don't talk about it a lot on this show, but sometimes it's fun to be cute. And by that, I mean small cast irons are like the cutest thing in the world. So if it's just me or me and my kid, I'll do um, like some oven cooked eggs in a, like a six inch cast iron and it's just darling. So keep that in mind. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise you on there, Casey, and say that I have, I think it's like a three inch cast iron pan, which is perfect for cook. Yeah. Which is perfect for cooking uh, a single egg. If you're like me and you're single and alone, um, (laughs) then it's, it's perfect for that. Just that one egg that you want on your toast. (laughs) So it also goes the other way. If you don't have any kids, (laughs) you're like, I don't need a 14 inch cast iron because it's me. (laughs) Cool. Enjoy your giant pan. I just, I'm going to have a little tiny one. (laughs) <laughs> well, don't overcrowd the little tiny one. That's the no, takeaway. No. I've got a six-inch one, too, in case I'm feeling fancy when I cook two eggs for myself. <laughs> That's awesome. All right, uh, let's let's hit on this last one because we're, we're running out of time. I'm going to get in trouble for us going too long, but it's okay. Um, not reading the recipe all the way through. Um, holy smokes. I think I've met people my entire life, even in the professional culinary world, that have made this mistake. I've made this mistake a lot. Um, The biggest issue I find, so like this may be a little bit of the organization freak in me, is is like the concept of mise en place. Mm -hmm. Mise en place from the kitchen standpoint is like everything in its place. So... I try to prep everything out ahead of time and like 
I also too is if you read through most recipes and some recipes are structured this way and some are not and you can tell the type of recipe writer on what it is the recipe ingredients list the way you progress down it matches the steps in preparation so you have like heat the pan on the stove to medium high temp add one tablespoon of oil well the first ingredient is oil the next ingredient add you know chopped whatever chopped onion your next ingredient's your onion like it's sequential sesqu- ooh sequential <laughs> that was a challenge but it lets you work down through that list and so you know too like holy smokes i'm not, i'm not scrambling to get out of it but the mise en place is sort of like that's that's a very like kitchen you know uh old world kitchen coming out of like everything in its place you've got your little bowl of your chopped onion you've got your little bowl of your minced garlic you've got your parsley you've got your lemon juice you've got all these your white wine your shallots i think i just made uh some kind of scampi (laughs) in this episode but uh that you've got all this stuff laid out so as you're progressing through your directions you don't have to worry about like oh crap i gotta chop this onion in like two minutes all right done put it in there Everything's already done ahead of time. Prep out your ingredients. And I think that way that prevents you for probably the biggest one is either not having an ingredient you needed, which I've definitely made some mistakes on, or like not having that ingredient in a place where it needs to be in order to incorporate it into the recipe. So I think making sure you, you read the whole recipe is probably the biggest thing. Yeah, I like having the massive cutting board. Like the bigger the better, and and that really comes into like a, my own meats on plastic is just like on my cutting board. So I don't have cute little bowls all set up, which are gonna I can have to wash later. I just had this huge stupid. I feel like that was a that was a yeah, stab. Right? Just... <laughs> that was a little dig at Casey. I just don't want to wash them afterwards. You can have them all you like because that's what like most cooking shows will show you, and it, and it it works great. It looks awesome. But uh, then you're washing 20 bowls at the end of the night. But uh, if you have a big-ass cutting board, you can just put little piles and keep cutting and cutting and cutting, and then it's all ready to go, and then you just move your cutting board beside the stove and start whipping stuff into the pan. Um, that's just been my style, but, you know, I'm I'm a rebel like that. So, uh, Man. It really, uh, the mise en place, like having everything ready really helps, and reading the whole recipe really helps. Um, it's makes it such a huge difference i think in the kitchen just read the whole thing out make sure you have everything pull everything out of the fridge have it ready to go and when you're doing stuff like uh stir fries or like wok cooking or stuff that happens really fast it's extra important because you'll, you'll never be able to get stuff and chop it in time to throw it into the pan while it's cooking so yeah yeah i think that's for casey i think you had something you leaned close to the microphone I was biting my tongue. I was just disappointed that Adam didn't take our tip on being cute in the kitchen. <laughs> Bashing yeah. all of our cute spice yeah. dishes. I'm cute. I can, I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm cute, cute enough. enough. I don't need, I don't need I can, all this extraneous stuff to be cute in the kitchen. <laughs> I, can wash, I can wash my ten little cute bowls just as quick as you can scrub your cutting oh. board. So there. <laughs> Uh, 
No, you, you that I mean that is an interesting point. Not the cuteness or uncuteness of the bowls cuz my bowls aren't cute. They're just plain stainless steel bowls. Uh but uh um, I guess I do have one no. tidbit as uh someone that doesn't cook with a lot of recipes. Um I guess I read through a lot of recipes and then kind of find the middle ground in between some of them and wing it and go for it and make various renditions until I find a version that I like. But um, kind of with that in mind is uh, similar to the idea of reading through the recipe or, or cooking through the recipe is knowing when to use certain ingredients. Um, and I don't have any particular example other than I talked about making curry. Um, I found just recently that I like adding certain you know powders or seasonings towards the end of the cooking process rather than, you know, for instance, into the Dutch oven. I'm sure you guys might have some examples, but uh, it's easy to look at maybe if you're trying something for the first time or you don't feel like you've mastered it to just look at an ingredient list and think it's all the same and, and dump it in right away or at the end. But figuring out when to use what can be helpful too. The the biggest one I, I it comes to mind is salt. Mm-hmm. Like when do you salt? When do you salt? Colin, when do you salt? Uh, well, it depends how I'm prepping it. Sometimes I'll salt and pepper a piece of meat before I put it in the pan. But if it's like an array of things in the pan, so if it's like a bunch of different ingredients, I'll probably sprinkle some salt while it's in there. Adam, when do you salt? I salt lightly early, um, especially with meat and everything. I try to like, if I have a piece of meat and I'm extra prepared, I'll salt that. A day before even um but then i'll cite salt lightly at the beginning let that salt really add in like especially things like stews or like beans or a lot of stuff like it really transforms the dish and then i will finish at the end i'll taste and see if it needs some extra salt it definitely needs salt to cook but i don't want to over salt it especially if i'm like reducing it or anything like that um and then very very rarely ever salt at the table Kind of all happens during cooking. Casey, when when do you salt? Yeah, uh, similar to Adam, often lightly in the beginning, but part of it depends on on how long I'm cooking or or what I'm cooking, and what I want the salt to do. I guess. Um, I don't know if the, this is a, a bit of a tangent, but I did just recently start yes! using. Uh, <laughs> I started using a, a gifted salt. Um, that's more of a finishing salt, but it's ghost pepper salt. It's powdered ghost pepper and salt. So I have some too. It's great. Um, it struck me as like being a little gimmicky when I got it and now I love it. And it's, um, kind of going to, when do you salt? I've used it in a handful, any, really any dish that could be perceived as spicy. Um, I lean more towards like the spicier end of things. So often, with again having a small child and a wife i don't want to blow their socks off so i'll get it to where i know they'll be comfortable with it and then i can finish it with a little bit of that um again it doesn't have to be ghost pepper salt but i found that just you know a tiny little dash at the end of a meal can push it to where i want it i yeah i like it's funny like people gifting salt somebody just gave me some truffle salt uh which i like truffles and I like salt, so we'll see. But, um, no, I, I think, uh, so I'm sort of, 
I guess I'm in the boat similar to all you guys, like close to where Colin's at, like too. It depends on what it is. I may salt and go on the pan. Like definitely if I'm trying to brown, I will salt because I like that. Like it adds a bit to it. But I've also like salted, let it set because salt also pulls moisture out of things. So I've salted beforehand, taken moisture off, and then seared or roasted or whatever. But um, I definitely... What? Hold, hold on. <laughs> He's so excited. My, He's so giddy. So for those of you that can't see, I raised my hand politely, <laughs> saying that I had to say something. But the intent wasn't to to cut you off mid sentence. I was just like, "Hey, I got something." To say. Good. Just go ahead. Good. <laughs> While Justin's collecting himself, now I have to remember what exactly it was I was going to say. Jeez. Well, why you remember, so I, I, I too finish at the end. But this goes back to a big point that we brought up earlier is not always if you're missing flavor do you need salt. Sometimes you need acid, uh, depending if your recipe is lacking that, um, which we brought up. That could be something simple as like adding lemon juice, adding vinegar, adding some sort of acidic compound in that will also act as salt in the flavor-enhancing capacity and like make it pop. So, all right, Casey. Yes, this I your last. This is your last go. Since uh, this is kind of the, the premise of the podcast is mistakes and learns from the past, uh, one thing with salt to keep in mind that I have made the mistake on before is if you're preparing a dish with, like, cured meat, whether it's sausage or something of the like, or, you know, like, brined fish or something, to be aware of the added salt content that's already in the meat. Because I've definitely over-salted dishes in the past where it's absorbing the salt from the meat and how it was prepared in advance, where it probably needed very little to no salt with the meat that I used. Yeah. Yes. That's a, that's a hot tip, too. Yeah, especially if you're brining something, right? If you're doing that, there's some techniques to get the salt out of, salt salty flavor out of the brined meat as well. I've done that also, but um, unfortunately, we're gonna wind down. Uh, we could, I think, we could go on about this more. I will say more tips, tricks, or whatever. Uh, tune into the uh, podcast we're gonna do at the BHA Rendezvous because we're gonna do a Q and A there too. So people are gonna come with questions. So if you're gonna be at Rendezvous, come with questions and we'll answer them uh, live on the show. Um, not sure how we're going to broadcast that out other than a recorded podcast. We may stream it. We may do whatever, but we'll see. But uh, I'll go ahead and go around the room for last thoughts. Uh, Adam, your name starts with an A, so you're first. Uh, yeah, not much else to say. Just remember impatience and attention. If you if you keep making mistakes in the kitchen, it's probably because of one of those two things. So, so find your pain point. Find what's happening. Are you leaving the kitchen? Are you, are you rushing through things and... and if you want to change your cooking for the better, try to change that. Yeah. Casey? Uh, a couple of short things. One being, if you mess something up, um, I think a lot of the things we've mentioned here today are that are already on the website. You might be able to salvage it, so don't throw the towel in on a dish right away, like we mentioned. Depending on, on where you went wrong, it might be a really easy fix. And then the other thing I would note... Um, I was going to mention earlier, and we just, we've got so much to talk about, but is 
figuring out <laughs> how to build in a buffer. And so there's the easy mistakes to make, but there's some, some ways to give yourself some extra grace. So like Justin, you mentioned adding fat to the wild pig that you did on the smoker. Um, I think about using like call fat on a, you know, like a tenderloin to keep all that moisture and, and juices locked in. So techniques like that, that maybe if you feel like you're still learning techniques here and there, you can build in a little bit of a buffer for yourself. Absolutely. Colin, last thoughts? Um, the only other thing I have is for, especially with slow cooking, my experience is if you're worried about um, something coming out with the G word attached, gamey. Um, it's a bad word. Yeah, I know. But the flavors that people commonly associate with being gamey, um, red wine pretty much solves all of your problems. So if you, like this pot roast that I made the other day. I was like, I made it. I had some uh, elk bone broth that I used as the kind of like the cooking liquid. And then afterwards when it came out and kind of had that flavor, very uh, mineral, minerally. Um, and I was like, dang, you know what would have made this awesome? Is just like a cup of red wine, a couple cups of red wine. Would have just turned it around. Um, that's kind of like a go-to for me. I haven't done it in a while because I'm trying to experiment with different stuff, but yeah, that is instantly turned any dish around. I like it. I like it's more it. of a pre- it's more of a preventative measure than fixing something, but still all in the same. There's probably some science behind it, I would imagine. Maybe we'll explore that <laughs> in our next myth. Yeah, Maybe. I mean, red wine's delicious, so you know. Oh yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> let's see. My thought is so definitely uh, pay attention to what you're cooking. I think it's probably the biggest thing. Uh, go into it with a plan, even if it's not your own recipe. Uh, like, m- think about what you want to do. Sometimes it's fun to wing it. I wing it all the time, but also depends on your level of comfort and what you're doing and your intent of what's going to come onto the plate. Uh, I wanted to share some recipes tonight, some recent recipes we had, but we ran out of time because we talked about a lot of things, a lot of really great things, which I'm really proud of because I think we hit on some – uh, mistakes we've made in the past, some ways we've overcome it, and hopefully uh, you it's time to resharpen your pencil because you've been jotting down notes. Unless you're driving, don't do that. Uh, but uh, other than that, I, I thank everybody for listening. And uh, as always, we'll post the show notes online. We'll put some links on there too of the recipes or stories or whatever things we've mentioned, meat thermometers. I don't know. We'll throw some notes in there. You can click on them and they go to great places and you can read more things. Uh, also head over to social media. Make sure you're following harvest nature. Make sure you're following the intrepid eater too. That's Adam. That's his AKA. Um, his, his, uh, his other side hustle. I don't know. Is that, that's his full time. We're his side hustle now. Uh, whatever it works. But uh, yeah, make sure you're following us on social media. You can stay up on all the great things that are happening there. And then uh, we'll make sure you subscribe to this podcast wherever you're listening to it. You could do that by following it or subscribing or whatever. And then whatever podcast platform you're listening to, also there should be a review button there somewhere. Leave us five-star written review. We like to send people's hats when they write us review. That still goes on. I see. I watch. And then also, too, in the in the show notes, there's a review this podcast link. Uh, so leave us a review. Tell us we're doing wrong or, you know, tell us we're doing right. Thanks, everybody. Have a good night.
In Wild Country, rules were not created by man. Don't miss Wild Country, Wednesdays from 7 to 11 p.m. Eastern. Presented by Primos. Speak the language. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.